Uh, well, if you have your Bible with you, uh, you can open it up to First Peter, uh, and we're going to be looking at, at chapter 1 together. Uh, well, we've been working our way through uh, some of the, the themes, the dominant uh, themes of, of Christmas. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've looked at hope and peace and love, and, and we've really considered how Jesus makes those better, how these, these rivers find their source in Jesus. And this morning, just a few days before Christmas, it's fitting, I think, that, that we would look at, at joy. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read verse 1 to 9 together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, a letter from C.S. Lewis uh, to a friend, an unknown friend, was discovered in a book in a used bookstore, just kind of tucked into the pages. And in that letter, Lewis tells this friend, we don't really know the context, but he says everything's going well. But then he goes on to explain that he does not mean joy when he says that. He says... Things going well is an illusion of security. Real joy seems to me almost as unlike security or prosperity as it is unlike agony. Real joy seems to me almost as unlike security or prosperity as it is unlike agony. He goes on, My private accounting is that one second of joy is worth 12 hours of pleasure. Joy, he would later write, must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and pleasure. So, so it's, it's something that's different than, than happiness, different than you know, the, the, maybe the feeling you get when you uh, hold a baby or, or share a good meal with, with friends. Lewis describes joy as something almost mysterious. He says, all joy reminds. It's never a possession, always a desire for something, longer ago or further away or still about to be. Right? That, that rings true, doesn't it? it? It's something that's 
sort of, like we can't possess it. We can't, we grasp at it, but, but we never really get it. It's like a, a vapor or a mist, right? Merry Christmas. <laughs> Essentially, our, our problem is a happiness problem, right? We, we, we long for it. We long for happiness that, that isn't going to leave us, right? But it always does. Blaise Pascal, a philosopher, he said this. He said, we almost never think of the present. And if we do think of it, it's only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. The present is never our end. The past and present are our means. The future alone, our end. Thus, we never actually live, but hope to live. And since we're always planning how to be happy, since we're always planning how to be happy, it's inevitable that we should never be so. Again, Merry Christmas, <laughs> right? We have, we have a joy problem, don't we? It's, it's self-evident, I think. Now, all of that is maybe a bit in the sky, and it's not a great idea to define a term in the negative. Um, so I want to get positive, right? Joy is not simply pleasure or happiness, but, but what is it? So there's really four questions I want us to ask this morning, four questions that we're going to ask Peter. One, what is joy? Two, what's the foundation of joy? How does joy function in real life, and how can I experience joy? What is it? What's the foundation of it? How does it work in the real world, and how can I experience it? So first, what is joy? I think what's interesting about a term like this, like if I, if I were to stop you on the street and just say, like, hey, what's joy? you might struggle with that, right? Like we struggle to define terms that we throw around, right? You might stumble over it. Now, if I stopped John Piper on the street, he wouldn't struggle. Here's what he would say. He would say, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world, which I think is a really good definition. Um, But we need to back up a bit, right? Because it's easy for us to run to a dictionary or run to a textbook definition, especially as Christians, to kind of go, okay, well, I know what joy is now, uh, and and fail to sort of test them, test those definitions against the rigors of, of life, right? Peter opens up this letter by calling his 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 readers' exiles. He compares them to the, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, this, this scattered and conflicted people. It's, it's metaphorical language, right? They're not literally exiles. They live in the place that they were born in. But like all Christians who would follow them, they're rightly called exiles, sojourners. So what does Peter mean here? What's it mean to be an exile? Eva Hoffman uh, was a Polish Jewish intellectual. Her parents had to flee Europe during the Holocaust. Uh, and she wrote about this exile. She wrote about spiritual homesickness. And listen to what she said. She said, Since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, is there anyone who does not in some way feel like an exile? We all feel ejected from our first homes and landscapes, from our first romance, from our authentic selves, an ideal sense of belonging, of attuning with others and ourselves, completely eludes us. Right? Our, our hearts long for home because there is such a home, a home that, that 
humanity experienced, then we all sort of have this spiritual homesickness, right? And the Bible says that in Adam, all men fell. All humanity sinned and, and thus experienced the loss of the garden, the loss of the home that God created for, for man to live in and be in communion with him. And so the reason that we feel homesick is because we are cut off from our true home. And what we have in this letter from, from Peter and all across the scriptures is this idea that, that there are, there's this people that God calls to himself, that, that God rescues, they're wandering in a great darkness, and he calls to them and brings them back home. The whole Bible is really a story of exile and return. Which is why Peter refers to his readers as the elect exiles, right? Which, that scene, those two words shouldn't go together, right? Chosen, elect, objects of God's affection, and yet seemingly abandoned to, to wandering, to homelessness. And so that's, that's the backdrop for, for any conversation about joy. It's not really what is joy, it's what reason is there for joy in our context in our situation, which, it, again, that's kind of a bleak question to ask, right? But I think if we're honest, this year has posed the question, right? What's, what reason is there for joy? If, if we are merely exiles, joy is impossible, but we are elect exiles. And so you look at the start of verse 6, Peter says, in this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So, so what is the this that we find joy in? Well, we've got to back up right, to verse 3. What's the foundation of joy for the exile? It's what preceded verse 6. Verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which I think when we're reading our Bibles, we can kind of like throw, like read past those. They're kind of like filler it's not filler, right? It's not a toss-away phrase. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an instruction to praise God. As one writer put it, it's a helpful remedy for hearts weighed down with discouragement because of suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to meditate for the reason that we have for joy, for praise. And I want to do that this morning. He says, according to his great mercy... God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from from the dead. By the resurrection of Jesus, God has has not only given life to him, but to us, right? And in, in his victory over death, he gives us new life. He makes all things new, beginning with us, right? Beginning with our hearts. And, and this is according to his mercy. It's the result of action that's that, that God takes. I was reading this week about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor. Uh, he's imprisoned uh, during the Second World War by the Nazis, and he's in his cell at Christmas time, and he, he, he wrote this in a letter. He said, A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Not a bad picture of Christmas. A a prison cell with a prisoner waiting, hoping that someone would come and open the door is a good picture of Christmas. He has caused us to be born again. 
It's the door being opened from the outside. And, and, and at Christmas, Jesus steps in through that door to our world. It's, it's God's doing. He has caused us to be born again. That's not something that, that you or I could do. You see, Christmas, as Annie kind of alluded to, Christmas demands an answer. Why did he come? Why did Jesus come? Why was he born? We sang this morning, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. God became a man. And more astoundingly, God became a baby. Right? The power that, that formed the universe and everything in it, the voice who, who spoke and Mount Everest took shape. The one who with his breath breathes life into to our lungs. The one who upholds the universe with his word. That God became a baby. I think we can kind of just like, go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what happened at Christmas. That's astounding. J.I. Packer says this. He says, God became a man. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. God put on flesh, right? He takes, he takes on our hands to heal us. He takes on our eyes to see us in our brokenness. He takes on our feet to walk among us. He takes on our weakness to meet us in our weakness. He comes not as a a conquering general, but he's born as a baby. He's completely dependent. And that's all of him. That's all his action, right? And so what Peter reminds us here is that we're born again a second time to a living hope, and all of this is God's doing, now, Lee preached on, on hope a couple weeks ago, and what we saw then, as we see here, is that this hope is, is altogether different than what we might expect uh, from, from hope, right? It's not this vague, ethereal, sort of ambiguous hope that we think about. It's a rock-solid, sure expectation for the future that we have in Christ, and that's cause for rejoicing, right? Why can the exiles sing for joy? Because we've been born again to a living hope, to a, to a joy that's not tethered to circumstance. And then we look at verse 4. You've been born again to an inheritance, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. When we, my wife and I lived in England before we had children and could do things like that. Um, we had friends uh, who could trace their, their family lineage back hundreds of years uh, to the courts of King Charles I in the 1600s and, and well beyond. And uh, he was able to go to this local records office and, and see their family tree. And in order to prove nobility, families would keep, keep their family tree sort of locked away and, and official. So at this office, they pulled out this scroll that's about eight to ten feet long, and laid it out on this huge wooden table. And you can see each generation, one after another, hand-painted with these coats of arms, generation after generation, 
And, and what's interesting about it is each, each error has a little one or two sentence blurb. What did they do, right? What did they do with their life? What did they do with the family estate? And so you see, like, wealth was familial. Land and money stayed in, in the family. Now, here's where it gets, gets interesting with his family. They had money. Uh, you can see in the 1600s, they're well-connected. The wealth is growing. The property is growing. Think like Downton Abbey kind of thing. And you can trace it down the line. And then William Caldecott comes along. Now, here's what it said under his name. William Caldecott, the son of Nicholas Caldecott, by his wife, the daughter of John Haffledon, had diverse lands in Meldrith, Melbourne, Orwell, and Cambridge, lots of land, but lived to spend his whole patrimony and afterwards died in the house of Lord Volks. He lived to spend his whole patrimony, all the property he inherited, he spent. Spent it all. And if you continue down their family tree, by the 1800s, they're servants. They move from from the upper class, well-connected, titled elite to servitude. That's that's the thing with an inheritance on earth, isn't it? Right? It's, It's subject to decay. It's subject to loss, to destruction, to poor choices. But what's the nature of our inheritance? It's kept in heaven for us. Right? It's secure, it's untouchable, it's unshakable. Nothing anyone else does can take it from you, and nothing, listen to this, nothing you can do can lose it. What a word, kept. Kept, it's a perfect passive participle. That means it's something that's completed in the past with, with results that are continuing in the present. Completed in the past, con- continuing in the present, God has stored up this inheritance for us, and it continues to be there, reserved for us. And then you notice what Peter does here. He makes a shift. He's been, it's all been like collective, talking to everyone, and he shifts to you. This is kept for you, personally, you. And then we read verse 5. It's kept for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The picture that Peter paints for his reader is one of security in the midst of, of an uncertain world, right? Reading the news, maybe don't read the news, but reading the news, taking in all the, all the brokenness, all the suffering, the, the anger, the pain, the trouble that this world has to offer can make you feel like you're kind of standing on a, a, a platform that's, that's about to give way. And the promise here is not that everything in life will be okay. It, it might not be. And Peter doesn't promise more, more than he can, but he does affirm for us that the great future that we have is kept for us by the power of God, and nothing on earth can shake it loose from those who are in Christ. Edmund Clowney, an old preacher, said this. He said, the wonder of our hope is that the same power of God that keeps our inheritance also keeps us. We are shielded until the great day when our salvation will be revealed. The word shielded means kept under guard. He says it's used of protective custody. God has put us under arrest, as it were, to keep us safe for his day. Pilgrims, exiles we may be, but the cloud of God's power that leads us in the way becomes a wall of fire about us. 
the foundation of our joy is in the gospel and in what, what Christ has accomplished for us and in us in the future, the secure future that we look forward to. Our, our joy is, is rooted in, in the fact that, that we have an inheritance that, that is kept for us and we're kept for it. We have much, much to rejoice in. But here's where we need to resist the temptation to stop without asking the difficult questions, which is what Peter does, right? Like he turns, he turns from here's all that you have in Christ to here's your situation, right? From, from the wonders of the gospel to the reality, the pain of everyday life, the reality that those who rejoice in Christ will suffer, which brings us to our third question. How does joy function? How does joy work in real life? What's the Christian response to suffering, to pain, to trial? Are we supposed to just sort of smile and and grin and, and bear it? Does it bounce right off us, or does God actually not allow Christians to suffer? You know, what about this year? This has been a hard year. I don't care who you are. It's been a hard year. So many have suffered physically, mentally, socially, economically. And then we sing, joy to the world, the, the Lord has come. No more let sins and sorrows grow, he, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. But then you look around and it sure seems like sin and sorrows are growing and that thorns and troubles abound. Look at verse 6. Notice what's, what's happening and when. He's, he says, In this you rejoice, though now, now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. When does the rejoicing take place? Is it after the suffering? No. Stirring. It's, it's present tense. You rejoice even though now you're facing trials. Present tense. That phrase, grieved by various trials, can be read as suffering grief. It's the same language that's used of of Jesus' experience in the garden. It's possible to to rejoice and cry out in agony at the same time. And that, that goes beyond our grasp, doesn't it? You see, for the average person, joy or rejoicing is a reflection of circumstance. Right? Those two things are tied together. Joy, circumstance, if... One is good, the other is, right? Health, wealth, achievement, family stability. So for the average person, this is how you can't, right? How can you rejoice and suffer at the same time? You can't have joy in any circumstance if your joy is a circumstance. So for the average person, the average Christian even, this idea of suffering and rejoicing in tandem is nonsensical. If anything, the typical Christian view is that we need to rejoice instead of suffering, right? To sort of grin and bear it and say things like, oh, well, yes, it's, it's been really hard, uh, but, you know, we're trusting, we're trusting the Lord and, it, you know, sort of avoiding it. There's, there was a man in the Old Testament, his name was Job, and you might know the story. He, he gets this bad news about his family, his estate. He loses everything. 
And what does he do? He gets up, he, he shaves his head, he tears his clothes, he throws ash into the air. And what does it say? It says, in all this, Job sinned not. Of that, Tim Keller says, I'm afraid the typical Christian would look at that scene and say, come on, you've got to have faith. You're not supposed to be screaming in agony. Right? Consider how Jesus himself went to the cross. It's the same thing. He sweats blood in the garden. He cries out. And yet, we read in Hebrews chapter 2 that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You see, it is possible to suffer and rejoice in tandem. And apart from Jesus, or but apart from Jesus, you will always either be suffering or experiencing circumstantial joy. In our world, those two exclude each other. Joy means the absence of sorrow, sorrow the absence of joy, but this distinction does not exist in, in the scriptures. Right? Jesus, the Son of God, is the man of sorrows, but also the man of complete joy. And so what Peter gives us here are three reasons we can not only endure trials, but we can rejoice in hope in the midst of trial. First, he says, our hope in Christ points us beyond the trials. Our suffering is, is temporary. Our hope is eternal. So we can look forward, right? We can look beyond our trials to the hope that we have. But second, not only does our joy direct our eyes beyond our sorrow, our joy is actually strengthened by the sufferings that we face. Listen to this. What Peter says is that the sorrow increases the joy. Because, like, Look at the illustration he uses. He says, because the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you put gold into the fire, it gets brighter. It gets purer. See, a living hope means that when your circumstances fail you, when your temporary things get torn away, when life falls apart, your sorrow actually drives you into your joy. It pushes you to Christ. Sorrow drives you to Christ. Just like when it gets colder out, the furnace kicks in, right? Suffering and sorrow do something to our faith. But what do we typically do, right? When we start to experience the, the agony of, of losing things that give us hope and pleasure and security— we typically run to indifference or to anger, right? We, we do everything we can to avoid in, engaging with the sorrow, right? Indifference, right? We can, we can turn on Netflix and just check out, right? Or we can go on Amazon and buy more things, or we can think about booking a vacation that we won't actually get to take, right? We, we try to, to numb it, or we get angry, right? We charge God, or we charge others for failing to live up to our expectations. And the only thing we don't actually do is, is engage with our sorrow, because if we did, the, the house of cards that, that we've built would come crumbling down. But you see what Peter says here. It's, this, it's a picture of a life that I think any, any reflective person would want. It's, it's a life that's big enough for anything that life throws at it. It's a durable life, because it enables us to face any circumstance and not have it shake us to our core. We can, this joy enables us to, to weep without it destroying us because we have a hope. Right? And this is, this is tough in our day-to-day -day existence. 
when there's so much darkness. And this is where the incarnation, the idea of God, not the idea, the reality that God put on flesh is so powerful. Dorothy Sayers, writing about the incarnation, said this. She said, God can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of the human experience. From the trivial, trivial, trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain, all for us, and thought it well worth his while. The humanity of Jesus Christ means infinite comfort for us in joy and in suffering. Isaiah called him the wonderful counselor because he is, right? Consider what that means. He really and truly is a wonderful counselor, right? When you're going through something, it's good to, to seek out someone that's walked that road before you, right? Someone that knows what, what you've experienced in every way. Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he has walked every path that we've walked. He lights the way before us. Tim Keller said, you have a God who truly understands you from the inside of your experience. There's no other religion that says God has suffered, but that God had to be courageous, that he knows what it's like to be abandoned by friends, to be crushed by injustice, to be tortured and die. Christmas shows he knows what you're going through. When you talk to him, he understands, right? Christmas proves to me that God has been everywhere I've been. He's faced everything I've faced and infinitely more, right? He is human in every way. He has suffered and triumphed over his suffering and now has infinite power to comfort. And now the third reason that, that Peter gives for why we can rejoice in the midst of trials Our trials are never forgotten by the Lord. However small they may feel or however big they may feel, they're not meaningless. He keeps our tears in a bottle, the psalmist says. Paul tells us that our light and momentary troubles are working for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. And Peter here says that our faith, tested and found genuine, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, if you read that quickly, you might think that that's praise and honor and glory to Jesus, which I think it is, but I think we need to read it a little more closely than that because in all the commentaries I read, it's praise and honor and glory to us and to him through the work that he's done in us. We are caught up in that. Our faith, tested genuine, is a testament to his work in us and through us. So you think about, think about the cross, right? He, he re- receives what we deserve so that we could get what he deserves. He receives the punishment and the shame and the dishonor that we had coming our way so that we can hear the words of welcome from God our Father. And there's this spot in the Gospels where Jesus, he's baptized in the Jordan River, and as he emerges from the water, the sky opens up, and it says, a voice came down from heaven saying, you, you are my beloved son. With you, 
I'm well pleased. Now, through this new creation, through this new work of God, he extends that love that exists within God himself to you and to me. Through the gospel, Jesus' righteousness is counted as as my righteousness, as your righteousness. The way that God the Father views his son Jesus is now the way he views you and me and all those that he calls his own. And so when we hear the Father say to Jesus, you're my beloved son, I'm pleased with you, we hear an echo of what he says to us. Right? We're, we're counted as sons and daughters in the fullest sense. So you see, the new birth radically reshapes our view of both suffering and joy because every circumstance is informed now by our new identity in Christ as beloved child. Now, very quickly, how can I experience this joy? Well, you need, you need to be born again into a living hope, right? What, why does it say it like that? Why doesn't it just say, like, you get a living hope? Why are we born into it, right? You see, the living hope is something that completely and totally changes you. It means to, to have a new heart, to have a heart of stone replaced with a, a heart of flesh. It's, it's such a drastic change that the only metaphor that works is to say you're born again. You're a, you're a new person. And so how do you get it? Well, well, you believe the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is not, if I, if I do this, if I work hard enough, if I live up to this standard, then God will accept me. No, the gospel is that because of what Jesus accomplished for me, for me personally, on the cross, something is kept for me. There's no condemnation for me. I'm, I'm holy and blameless in, in his sight, and someday I'm going to experience the, the fullness of that in ways that are beyond my comprehension. And, and even now I have a new foundation that, that changes how I, how I handle everything that, that comes my way in life. But now there's one last thing to say, right? It's, it's possible to be born again into that living hope, but not to have really worked it out. In a sense, you might say, I, I know I've been born again. And I'm right here with you. I'm, I, I know I've been born again, but this joy that's untethered to circumstance just seems to elude me. I know, I know that Christ lives in me. I know that I have his righteousness. But a joy that is not tied to circumstance, I don't know that. Paul instructs us, he he says, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling, for it's God who works in you. And this this is something we need to work out daily. This is something we need to fight for. I think with something like joy, it's it's easy for us to give an easy answer and just say, well, it's an emotion, right? I can't control that. We need to fight for this. We need to work out out our salvation, work out the implications of it. And so you look at the end of our passage. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, obtaining, like ongoing. That's right now. 
obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The life of faith is a life of believing in more than what the eye can see. And here's how you get it. Here's how you experience this joy. You, you look at him until by the Spirit's power you sense a glorious and growing love for him. Here's what I mean. Imagine, imagine a house that's surrounded by scaffolding. It would be possible for you to jump up on that scaffolding and walk around that house and get a pretty good sense of it. You could look in the windows. You could see what's going on inside. You could know all about the siding, the roofing. You could know all about it without ever having gone inside, without ever having lived in it. And I'm afraid that a lot of us, that's how we look at the Christian life, just sort of walking around the peripheral. We know a lot about it, but we haven't experienced the, the love that he has for us and the joy that's available to us. God is calling you inside. He's calling you to move away from the abstract and into the personal, to understand what it is to be fully known, fully known and loved by God, welcomed into the family, right? We can get into this pattern of thought where we have this future vision of ourselves. Maybe it's 10 years down the road where we're finally, finally getting it right, right? We've figured out how to read our Bibles. We've got a good job. The family's going great. We're tithing. We've kicked those bad habits, and that's when God's going to be happy with us. The truth of the gospel is that God is never going to love you more than he loves you right now. Today, this morning, God loves you in Christ as much as he's ever going to. Get that into your soul. You don't have to earn his favor. He isn't looking down on you only as judge. He's looking down at you as a father looks on his child. And when that percolates down from your mind and into your heart, when you, by the work of the Spirit, understand that new identity that you have in Christ, that changes everything. It truly does. Changes how we view and experience and interact with, with every circumstance, whether it's great joy or great uh, pain. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the joy we have in you, a joy that goes beyond circumstances. Um, even now, Spirit, would you move among us? And show us Christ. Would you make us uh, a pilgrim people whose hearts are, are freed to face uh, any, any pain, any sorrow with, a, with our joy remaining intact? Would you give us confidence in what you've accomplished for us? Would you shine into our darkness with your light um, and give us, give us joy? We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.